Hello, Space Ghost, and welcome to another episode of Florida Today's Eye on Brevard, the podcast. I'm Rob Landers. Joining me, as always, is my colleague and co-host, Isadora Rangel. Hi, Isadora. How are you? Hi, Rob. Great. Uh, joining us this week is environment reporter Jim Weimer. Jim, welcome to the studio. Thank you. Okay, so Jim, uh, I'm noticing, uh, I'm having a little deja vu as I'm driving over the causeways over the Indian River, and I'm looking out to the left, and I'm, I'm seeing what looks like the color and consistency of chocolate milk yet again. What is going on in the uh, Banana River? Well, we're experiencing another brown tide. This is a species of algae that first appeared in this area. Uh, around 2005, they started seeing it in samples, but at very low levels. Now it's, uh, it, bloom, it hit bloom levels in like 2012, and by 2016, we had a horrible fish kill, if you all remember. So it's sort of the ramp up to what could potentially be yet another, you know, we're seeing similar le levels as we saw two years ago. So. So, so we could be looking at another catastrophic fish kill where you know the county is yet again going to have to bring dumpsters in to pick up the the carcasses of dead fish all along the Indian River Lagoon again. Yeah, that, yeah, that, yeah. That the the level of event that we're looking at. Yeah, we're seeing the, those kind of algae cell concentrations. I think it was like 80 dumpsters they fill, 65 tons of dead fish that year. People were going around in surgical masks, you know. Right, because the smell was like, awful. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. So. Um, I believe it was also in 2000, uh, 2016 that voters passed uh, the half-cent sales tax to uh, aid the Indian River Lagoon. So uh, we're, we're a year in now, and that money's coming out and going towards projects in the Indian River Lagoon. Why are we not seeing an improvement? Yeah, it's going to take time. And a lot of it, you know, this particular algae, algae species and a lot of these algae blooms, they're driven by the nutrients that come from sewage. And so we had Hurricane Irma, which pushed out a lot of the nutrients that were in the groundwater from septic tank drain fields. For, you know, and then we had big uh, wastewater treatment plant discharges that where the, the plants got so overwhelmed that they just had to pump a lot of this raw sewage right into the canals. So you know, we're on a 10-year plan for uh, $303 million, and I think about 73 0.5 million, about a quarter of that money is going to sewage infrastructure improvements. So it's just going to take time. The plans, you know, is rolling, but it'll take some years before we see some real results. So uh, besides the the sewage dump, I mean, we've we've had algae blooms before the the major dump. What else is behind these these uh, fish kills and algae blooms? No pun intended with dump. Well, yeah, this really kind of all, you know, the really salient moment was probably in 2011 where we had that green algae super bloom. And it, it's, there's a lot of theories out there, but it was sort of a tipping point, kind of perfect storm kind of theory that we were having extreme cold events. If you remember, it was, I think, 2009, where everybody was saying, oh, isn't this great? You know, mission accomplished. The seagrass was back to 1940 levels. But then we had these extreme cold spells in 2009 and 2010. And then what you had was uh, the seaweed, that kind of sort of the stuff that comes in on the lagoon banks, that all got killed in the cold. And when that died, that released all these nutrients into the water. So then the phytoplankton fed off that and went gangbusters. And then that blocked the sun to the seagrass. Sea so seagrass couldn't grow. And that's what sort of stabilizes the bottom and keeps the nutrients from continuously stirring up. So now we're on this vicious cycle where the, you know, the boom-bust cycles of algae have just been sort of more extreme and sped up. But it was, it's thought to be the, sort of the extreme climate you know, events that happened 
you know, about t around 2009, 2010 that really triggered it. And what is the county doing to prepare for another potential fish kill? Well, they've uh, basically come up with an emergency sort of, they sort of set up like an emergency team that next time, they were kind of taken aback last time and without a plan when all these fish started floating up dead or covering entire canals. And typically what local government would do is they just kind of let this stuff sink and go away after a week or so. But it was, people got so outraged and this, the odor was so bad and they got so many complaints that they sort of had to scramble. Well now they're doing these things, they're getting all the permits and they're lining up all the people and how they're going to go out and sort of quick hit, see, oh, is this just, you know, your, your random fish, you know, a few fish here, a few fish there, or is this going to be another, you know, fish apocalypse kind of event? that they really need to get out there and you know, hustle and clean up. I'm, I'm gonna use that word in the description of the podcast. Fishpocalypse. <laughs> Fishpocalypse. Fishmageddon too. Fishmageddon, fishpocalypse. That's, you know, it's, can it's we try I mean, to, can I mean I'm glad that we can sit and, and laugh about it in the studio, but it's it's really a, a serious and, and sad subject that, that we've gotten to this point with the lagoon where now, you know, every other year we're bracing for when the next Fish apocalypse is going to happen. I lived in, an, in on the Treasure Coast when the algae blooms last summer happened, and that was a different source. It came from Lake Okeechobee discharges, but just the smell of it, it was putrid. It was also, horrible. Also, a different color. I mean, you had blue green. green, blue, blue. At least it looked nicer. Blue green algae. It was, you know, it was it was prettier, but uh, oh. Well, that's toxic stuff. I mean, that puts out puts out you know, when the cell, I guess, the algae cell dies. It emits this uh, microcystin toxin that, I think, over time, it can cause liver cancer. It can get in drinking water supplies. But you know, this brown algae we're seeing is actually non-toxic, but it, the other bad effects from it can uh, be even worse. Uh, you know, you, it basically clogs up the shellfish. They can't, they'll sort of spit it out. It's got sort of like a mucus cover to the cell that like <laughs> nothing really wants to eat it. And it you know, tends to thrive in saltier, shallow waters and it's out competing the algae that the shellfish really like. But you know, things like if it starts killing off the seagrass beds, then you know, you've got like seasonal things that happen like the pinfish will run out Sebastian Inlet and that's like a smorgasbord for like the king mackerel every fall. So if that stops happening, what's going to happen to the king mackerel? You, so you have these ripple effects that, that the fishermen and the ecologists are really concerned about. So I guess basically what we're saying though with the with the half cent sales tax is just be patient. You didn't pass this for nothing. It's taken you know 40, 50 years of all of that muck on the bottom of the the lagoon to build up. It could take a little while to, to get it all out and get it cleaned up and no matter how much flushing we do with the inlets it's, it's there's still a problem and uh, I will say that I did see a report that, uh, that the grass is thriving in the Chesapeake Bay and that crabs are thriving in the Chesapeake Bay if the Chesapeake Bay can turn things around so can Brevard County so you know they did that with uh, Tampa Bay and I mean there are you know we can look back in history and see where you know we actually accomplished to clean up our waterways yeah we're really looking to those two estuaries uh, as a model but you know the one thing is the, those are big open bays and that they have a lot of tidal influence and, of and flushing and we're this big long 156 mile you know with only a handful of inlets and so there's very t weak tidal influence. So you don't get a lot Especially of Especially the Brevard portion of the lagoon. If you go down south, you have the St. Lucie Inlet, which is closer to Jupiter. 
and then you have the Fort Pierce Inlet. Here we only have the Sebastian Inlet, right? Well, yeah. We also yeah. have we also have the port and the the locks of the port that actually do some flushing in the north end of the county too. Yeah, and you're only going to get maybe a mile or like mile and a half or so on either side of Sebastian Inlet, just because it's not that big of an inlet. Right. Like when you have a Fort Pierce Inlet, like it's, it's a lot of the talk of inlets here. Say, so, well, we would need something on par with Fort Pierce Inlet. That, that, you know, to really make a difference, but think about all the residential and commercial development. Where are you going to put that where people aren't going <laughs> to And go then you crazy, have another 10-year battle to get people to leave their homes and... Well, to get a permit yeah. and hundreds of millions of dollars for new inlet. And then there's yeah. the whole restoring the sand south of the inlet because that's the way the sand drifts and yeah. So, uh, speaking of sand and shore and uh, offshore, uh, let's segue, nice segue right into our <laughs> next topic. So, Isidore, you want to take this one? Yeah, so another thing you reported on this week is a report on offshore drilling. Uh, that has been a hot topic in the news recently. There is a, uh, the Constitution Revision Commission has a proposal for a constitutional amendment to ban offshore drilling. I think that's something that across party lines you see a lot of people who don't want that in Florida. So what does your report or the report that you reported, reported on say? Well, this is from Oceana and every couple of years, they're, this, they're really focused on this issue. But every couple of years they'll do an economic analysis to say like what's at risk? If we, you know, we have these deep water horizons, like the BP oil blowout, that, and all this oil coming up on the beach and tar and whatnot, what are the jobs that are at stake? How much, you know, economic activity is at stake? And I think they came up. This latest report was 610,000 jobs in Florida that were at risk, and 37.4 billion in economic activity. And then on a national level, that's 2.6 million jobs and about 180 billion in GDP. So. They're saying, and, and this would only get you, they're, they're basically saying, you'll get maybe a, a year or two of, of oil out of this. So it's not worth the risk. Oil is a finite resource, and you know, tourism is a more sustainable, you know, in these, some of these fisheries and, and all the recreational activity that goes on in Florida is a lot more sustainable long-term, and it's just not, the risk and reward is just not working out you know, for Florida. So is the issue that tourists would not want to come to Florida because they have this no, different I, image? I think, I think the problem is, and, and here's, here's the issue, is you're risking, okay, so let's say they start drilling offshore. The most oil that they would get offshore in Florida waters, if I'm re understanding right. this correct, is about a year's worth of fuel, okay, a year's worth of oil. How is it worth the risk to any part of Florida's beaches to have a level of event similar to the Deepwater Horizon that completely coated Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and part of Florida beaches with oil and tar? Uh, is any part of Florida worth you know risking that kind of event for a year's worth of, of oil? And at this point, I, I personally think no. And I, I kind of think that our lawmakers have always kind of tended to agree with that. No, it's not worth the risk of that kind of event on any part of our beaches because we will lose tourists. And even if we lose tourists, say something catastrophic happens, on the, the West Coast near Fort Myers or, or Naples, and you have that event, tourists hear Florida. So whether they're planning a trip to Naples or Fort, Fort Myers, it was the same People thing with, with the be. algae blooms, although the algae blooms were very concentrated in a small part of Florida, just the news all over the country. People don't know the difference between the St. Lucie River and Miami. So, um, but it's interesting, 
even Governor Rick Scott has come out against offshore drilling. And uh, we thought for a while that he had convinced the Trump administration to not do that in Florida, but apparently that's still on the table. Right? Yeah, there's a lot of uncertainty there and I think a lack of trust uh, between a lot of the states in this administration on this issue, among others. And, and so, you know, it seems like lately anything is on the table and anything can happen. So there have been a couple uh, legislators, including Bill Nelson, that earlier this year that have proposed legislation to, to keep Florida off limits. And so, uh, you know, it remains to be seen. But, but I think, you know, what you, the point you made before about it's beyond Florida and it's a perception thing. You, you know, there were, and, that, and Oceana makes that specific point is that, that look, you know, all these beach communities that didn't get hit with any oil, they got walloped on tourism after the BP spill. You know, people just didn't, they assumed or they didn't, you know, they, they canceled their reservations and all those coastal communities got, got hammered. Right, you know? right. And, and, you know, uh, I, I also think, and I'm not just going to put it on this administration because it's, it's, it's been a GOP mantra. I mean, drill, baby, drill. Um, so it's not it's not just on the Trump administration. It's it's on the Republican Party. But I feel like in Florida, the Republican Party is is looking and seeing where the money is coming into the state and what is funding the Florida workers. And it's it's not offshore drilling. It's our tourism industry. And so you know you have an event like Deepwater Horizon happen. Um, you know the the tourist destination at Disney is going to be safe. But, you know, people who want to come to Florida for the beach are going to avoid it no matter, you know, where it happens. So, Well, it's sort of the local undercurrent for, for the Space Coast. Well, you know, beyond the Space Coast, but there's been a particular interest here and with Oceana as well is the seismic air gun testing. They, they drag these, these, air gun, these giant air guns in an array behind a vessel and then they, they shoot sound at the bottom. It bounces back. Brings back and gives you a 3D picture of the geological structures, and then they can the geophysicists can say, oh well, that is is indicative of formations that might have oil or gas. So these, but that's a, but, the, but Jim, we're we're talking about a whole other environmental issue there right, when we talk right. about the sonic blast. Yeah, the because whale, then you're talking yeah. about the right whales that are endangered off of our coast. You're talking about the dolphins that swim off of our coast, and to be out there and get blasted with this, we're not really sure what the effect on them is, right? Yeah, and beyond that, I mean, there's been recent research. I think it was at Duke that they they're finding that this sound these sound guns affect the base of the food web. It it kills phytoplankton within and zooplankton like within a mile or so of where they're shooting the stuff. Well, then that so, sounds so, like we so, want them to come in and do that in the Indian River Lagoon. Right. Yeah, <laughs> but unfortunately it would kill everything else inside there. Well, but, no, uh, then we don't want them to come and do that in the Indian River Lagoon. Yeah, but the sea turtles, you know, the, some of the, you know, the permitting restrictions would be staying, keeping the, the sound guns away from the sea turtles as they're coming in to do their nesting and that kind of thing. Yeah. All right, Isadora, well, I think that wraps us up for us for this week. Uh, any other questions for Jim? No. Okay. You did great. Uh, Thank you. If you have questions for environment reporter Jim Weimer, you can email Jim directly at jwaymer, that's J-W-A-Y-M-E-R, at floridatoday.com. Uh, Jim is always happy to answer uh, questions from, from readers about his stories. Uh, and that's going to do it for this week on Florida Today's Ion Brevard podcast. Be sure to join us again here next week. And look for Isadora's interview with Rita Pritchett, County Commissioner Rita Pritchett from Titusville, next Wednesday on WEFS and on FloridaToday.com. Thanks for listening, everybody.